Welcome to Vojdani U episode 5. This is our monthly informational video series where we talk everything autoimmune disease uh, as it relates to you and your health. And uh, I'm Elroy Vojdani, MD. I'm the physician founder of Regenera Wellness, uh, which is my clinic where I see patients with autoimmune disease. And my monthly guest, as always, is my father, Ariso Vojdani, PhD. Uh, he is the chief scientific officer for Cyrex Laboratories and also the lab director and owner of Immunosciences Lab and a wealth of knowledge with all things immunology, so thanks for being here. Thank you, it's my honor to be here, Elroy. I appreciate it. So, you know, I kind of want to talk about um, what we're covering in these first few episodes, you know. Uh, and this diagram really shows it very well. We're talking about all the different factors that contribute to autoimmune disease, uh, you know. We talked about environment versus genetics and, uh, you know, environment being a bigger player in autoimmune disease. We've discussed dietary components last month in, uh, in their contribution to the mechanisms of autoimmune disease. Before that we talked about environmental toxins. And the last big category here that we're discussing is the role of infectious pathogens in autoimmune disease. And this is a huge, really fascinating topic, one that we're really starting to understand these mechanisms more recently than, than the other two categories. Yes, and the main reason for that, Elroy, is there are so many publications in the scientific journal, started almost 50 years ago, Yeah, about the role infections and their antigens or toxins mm -hmm. play in development a variety of autoimmune diseases which we are going to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, let's let's look at really the idea in general of environmental triggers and autoimmunity. Uh, this is an article that you wrote in the journal Autoimmune Disease. You were the guest editor and uh, you discussed really these entire categories, right? Yes, yes, yes. Not me. There are 11 other researchers from all over the world who wrote articles about the role of uh, different environmental triggers in autoimmune diseases. So these are ideas that are extremely well established in the scientific literature and we're just starting to kind of compile them into meaningful clinical information. Oh, oh definitely. Uh, for example, the last issue of Journal of Autoimmunity, yes. this one is Autoimmune Disease, mm -hmm. Journal of Autoimmunity, is, it was all devoted to epigenetics. Yes of autoimmunity. Right. So you explain to the... Yeah, epigenetics, is, epigenetics? Is, is really how our environment affects the expression of our genes and um, how those play a role in the processes of our, of our health. So, you know, how your environment uh, times your genes equals the expression um, in, in the real world. And so that shows everything we bring for discussion in here. It's all evidence-based. Yeah. In fact, in fact, in the past episode or past two episodes, we talked about uh, uh, the change of our microbiome. Yes. And then we simplified that. We said we have changed. Yeah. And also our, our microbiome changed. Right. And so therefore, to see how much advanced we are, I just brought here an article to share with you yeah. who discussed this whole issue, why allergies are on the rise. Now this was published why, in a big yeah. journal, uh, Nature Immunology, this is their latest uh, edition, The Immunology of the Allergy Epidemic and the Hygiene Hypothesis. And uh, this is a really fantastic diagram 
um, that kind of talks about all the things that contribute in early life health to our the overall development of our immune system. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, this is everything that we talked about in that episode. Exactly. It was, um, we were talking about window of opportunity, the window, right? So the window of opportunity, organ development, immune system development. Here we have uh, the mode of delivery. So we were talking about how important vaginal delivery is versus cesarean. Uh, the importance of uh, breast milk exposure in early life um, versus infant formula or cow's milk. Uh, and then also the potential detrimental role that um, early pathogen exposure or even vaccine exposure uh, at the inappropriate time can have on the immune system. Absolutely. There is one more item in here which is really very important that connecting the dots to our topics today. Yes. And that's the use of antibiotics during pregnancy, yes. say it's not a good idea, right? because that changed the microbiome of the mother, Right. My change of the mother's microbiome is going to change the immune system right. of the baby. That whole idea that the microbiome, these living bacteria in your gut are passed on from mother to child during the birthing process and any antibiotic exposure will uh, either temporarily or permanently change that mixture and therefore affect your baby's health. Yes, and finally, the overuse of yeah. antibiotics in general. Yeah. Overuse of antibiotics, it's not healthy, and that's why the bacteria, the viruses, all other pathogens are fighting back with us. Right. We try to fight against them, and they're fighting back with us. So elaborate a little bit about Yeah, that. well that ties in really, really well with what we're going to be discussing today and really this broad category of infectious pathogens and, and um, I want to take us back really in, and understand that our knowledge of infectious pathogens in general is relatively new in humanity. You know, we might go back 100, 150 years and really just the established idea that these pathogens uh, exist in what form and what contribution they might have to disease. And then you kind of fast forward to um, the early 1900s and the development of antibiotics. Really our idea was at that time that there's um, a war going on and that there's only two sides to the war. That if bacteria are present, we have to kill them. They are our enemy, they are our invader. And that came from, you know, so many deaths occurring due to acute bacterial infection during those times. And things like antibiotics, like penicillin, were a tremendous lifesaver in those acute conditions. And, you know, that has really carried forward until recent times. And our, our knowledge, our understanding is really starting to become evolved, that our relationship with these pathogens like bacteria is very complex, it's very symbiotic, which means that we have a give and take with them. They are an essential part of our gut system and our health in the correct balance. And I think when we started introducing all these powerful antibiotics and had this one-way view of the role of antibiotics in our health, we kind of went overboard one way. And I think in recent years, we have seen the infectious pathogens kind of fight back the other way. Absolutely. In fact, I believe that, you know, I'm a microbiologist. The bacteria and the viruses, 
viruses are laughing at us. Yeah. They're fighting back. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you uh, know or, uh, or not that the topic of my PhD, mm -hmm. you know, the thesis, yeah. was mechanism of drug resistance. Right. So I'm a, a microbiologist, right. used immunological methodology to prove why a bacteria acquires resistant against uh, antibiotics. Yeah. So the more we use antibiotics, they become smarter, they change their own DNA, so uh, will make some kind of proteins and prevent entry of the antibiotic through membrane right. of the bacteria and therefore they become resistant. Right. So and these bacteria can evolve to form defense mechanisms to our antibiotics, and we hear about that in the news all the time about uh, you know Staphylococcus, MRSA, uh, you know very difficult to treat pathogens that are evolving to be resistant to our weapons against them. Um, more important that you know to me, the more interesting side of this is the idea of eubiosis and dysbiosis, right? The balance of bacteria, or not just bacteria, the balance of bacteria, viruses, you know, other things that we call pathogens in our gut and the role that this plays in our overall health. And how much diet can... Right, that's influenced by many things, yes. by many environmental things. We, we mentioned antibiotic exposure because that's a very, I think, easy one to understand, but everything in our environment has the ability to affect that balance and um, you know eating foods that you might have immune reactivity to will change that balance because of the inflammation in the gut uh, you know exposure to environmental toxins will change that balance um, so really everything that we are exposed to everything that we eat that we eat really plays a role in that balance so so before going into each one of these or representative of some of these pathogens, yeah. infectious agents, and their role in autoimmunities, at least from this part, our message is use antibiotics only when it's 100% needed. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's no doubt that antibiotics are life-saving and, and really a, a miracle in acute infection from a bacterial agent. But, uh, you know, obviously we know that you know, uh, many of us have had a cold that was probably caused by a virus and were prescribed antibiotics. And um, not only did that not help the cold, but, you know, probably had some detrimental role to the long-term gut health of all of us out there. And that, that has happened to everybody. And, it, you know, um, really we're just trying to evolve our understanding of what all of that is doing and kind of move forward so that uh, we can be conscious of the decisions that we make in our life so that our overall health is preserved. Absolutely. So, minimize the use of antibiotics, mm -hmm. only if it's 100% needed, but at the same time, empower your immune system. Yes. Empower your immune system. And there are many ways. Yes. And it, this is one of your specialties. Yeah, there are, a lot, there are tons of, you know, uh, lots of supplements out there, lots of uh, lifestyle changes that can overall boost your immune system. Um, and, you know, everyone who comes into my clinic, this is something that I counsel because a well-regulated immune system is so important. Um, so, infectious pathogens playing a role in the actual mechanism of autoimmune disease. Um, you know, I first want to start by talking about 
how powerful this is. You know, there are so many really um, debilitating autoimmune diseases that we are starting to really uncover how big of a role infectious pathogens play play a role in. You know, um, and we're going to talk about different categories, um, and, and you know, to me, one of the most exciting ones, um, you know, that we'll cover in a future episode is Alzheimer's disease or neurodegenerative disease. And you know, we've been doing some research lately uh, to kind of further elucidate the role that infection in our gut or elsewhere in our body with viruses plays a role in the development of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, yeah. it's really fascinating stuff. Absolutely, I cannot wait until we'll discuss that with you guys. However, just as an introduction, you know that uh, the, that research originated from uh, STD. Yeah. Found out that patient or individuals who suffered from STD mm -hmm. during their lifetime, they develop more Alzheimer's. Yeah. And study with nuns, yeah, who know STD, you don't find Alzheimer's. Yeah, very interesting. Them. So that's how they, they, you know, they do epidemiological studies, right. and then from that, they do research, right. and then they come to conclusion. Right. We do and this. today we know at least twenty different bacteria, viruses, and parasites play a significant role in Alzheimer's disease. For me, Alzheimer's disease is an autoimmune disease. Absolutely. It's not just neurodegenerative disease. What is killing the neurons is the immune system, yeah, our absolutely. own immune system. So it is autoimmune and neurodegenerative disease. Absolutely. So we'll talk about that. Yeah, that, that just, you know, we bring that up to kind of hit home the idea that these are very powerful mechanisms. Um, and they play a very significant role in long-term health. And that is our idea here, is, is to make changes now to prevent further, um, you know, debilitation, uh, disease, suffering, you know, to keep ourselves as maximal as possible for as long as we can. And information is the key to doing that. Yeah. So here you see a, a, a nice picture representing almost uh, all uh, microbes in general. The categories. The categories of microbes. Right. And you see the variety of tissues which could be affected. Almost every single tissue in our body could be affected by one of these categories of microorganisms. So bacteria, viruses, parasites, molds, and uh, yeasts. Yeah. Those are the major ones. Right. That's why I'm showing this to you. Great. Okay. So now, about the mechanism before choosing each one of these. So the pathogen, from the pathogen all the way to autoimmune disease, the pathogen releasing all kinds of toxins. Right. So the toxins causing inflammation in our body, the immune system goes after them, try to destroy uh, the infection, and protect us, but unfortunately in the process, you know, the immune system can turn against our own tissue inducing autoimmune disease. Right. So we get exposed to a pathogen, it releases a toxin, it's kind of its weapon against us, right? 
and then it that weapon activates our immune system and in a perfectly balanced well-functioning immune system our immune system clears everything and we're done yes no autoimmune disease yes. no issues but um, in an imbalanced immune system or a uh, immune system that is not functioning at its optimal level it doesn't clear everything out yes and that's when we are left with these issues absolutely yes. for example you know there uh, as you know the latest article in one of the neurology journals found uh, lipopolysaccharides of E. coli yeah E. coli which is in our gut or salmonella which is in our food right sometimes unfortunately they found it in a amyloid plaque of right. the brain right in Alzheimer's and so this is major research that came out of uh, large universities in Boston and um, and UC Davis and UC Davis from very very well-respected scientists and and um, it's really fascinating stuff so LPS is that that weapon that toxin that we were talking about right yes that's the example of the weapon for E. coli which it releases in the gut and then you're saying they found it in the brain yeah it breaks uh, the gut barriers right. first get into the blood causing inflammation mm -hmm. and then breaking the blood-brain barriers and then manage to go into the neurons how fascinating yeah so, so the, the first big category uh, is you know we start with everything something that all of us understand right oral pathogens absolutely oral pathogens very very easy to understand and also there is very easy solution for it right go see your dentist your dentist and your periodontist okay. take care so if you don't mouth. believe i have uh, you know uh, obviously because of the time limitation i have chosen one out of 50 articles i have in my files about the role of uh, infections in periodontal disease yeah and even we know the mechanism and everything and, and, and here the mechanism, you want to... Of course, so um, this is a diagram and I'll, I will put it up um, as a full page slide for, for the actual video, but essentially what we're showing here on the right side of the diagram is a tooth with periodontal disease, so infection, uh, in this case with Porphyromonas gingivalis, which is a bacteria um, pathogen in our mouth. Uh, so periodontal disease, uh, with release of the toxin from that bacteria the release of that toxin results in um, damage to the barriers um, of our immune system right so in this case we're talking about mucosal barriers uh, leading to breakdown of blood-brain barrier um, and the basically the reaction to that uh, weapon that um, that toxin that Porphyromonas has leads to a reaction against your joints, it can lead to a reaction against your blood vessels, and it can uh, re lead to a, re a reaction against your blood-brain barrier. So this simple thing like having an infection in your mouth doesn't just stay in your mouth. When, when your immune system is kind of ramped up and it starts uh, hiring and recruiting all of its weapons, um, sometimes the missiles get a uh, directed at things that it wasn't intended to. This is friendly fire. Uh, and we're talking about autoimmune joint disease, uh, autoimmune atherosclerosis, inflammatory yes. atherosclerosis. So you get set up for things like uh, heart attacks and stroke, um, and then breakdown of your blood brain barrier, which leads to neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's. Absolutely. So, infection in your mouth leading to problems all over the body. 
exactly. So now, until two years ago, Elroy, that's the mechanism that I was teaching about. Yeah. That infection in the mouth, releasing the toxin, mm -hmm. the toxin goes into the GI, yeah. opening the gut barriers, inflammation in the blood, blood, as you know, that can go everywhere in our body, sure. the joints, the heart, and then even to the brain. Yeah. So that was how we were explaining it. That mechanism absolutely still is possible. Absolutely. However, there is a new mechanism that any infectious agents in the nose, in the adenoids, in the tonsils, in the gums, yeah. can go directly through the nerves this way, right to the blood-brain barriers, mm -hmm. without going through that cycle. Right. Can go, and then opening the blood-brain barriers, mm -hmm. and when the blood-brain barriers are open, there are all kinds of weapons, antibodies, in our blood fighting the infection. Now those antibodies are in the brain area, mm -hmm. and due to similarity between the infectious agents components with human brain cells, now those antibodies were floating in the blood, attacking the neurons and destroying the neurons, causing a disease such as multiple sclerosis or uh, ALS right. uh, or even Alzheimer's disease. You know, we haven't talked actually much about the blood-brain barrier so far, and it, it, you know, it, it is such a fascinating thing, but just in simple terms, it's, it's a protective layer between our, exactly the way it sounds, a protective layer between our systemic blood that flows everywhere in our body and our brain. So it, it really just makes sure that only the essential things that the brain needs, like uh, glucose, get transported through and that other things uh, like antibodies, um, proteins that it doesn't need, you know, infection doesn't make its way through as this way of protecting, you know, the most vital organ in our body. So this is a mechanism in which that directly gets disrupted right through the olfactory yes, nerves the nerves right. that are in our nose kind of breaking through the the cribriform plate which is the 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 um the base of the skull and directly going into the brain that's why we are putting going to put this slide for your review and again this was published in nature medicine yes okay so that's the mechanism now while we are in this area, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. when I bought my first clinical immunology book, yeah. there was a chapter in that book that streptococcal infection is the major cause of, this is 50 years ago, yeah. is the major cause of rheumatic fever. Yes. They didn't know the mechanism, right. but they knew that the bacteria in this area in the tonsils can release a toxin right and then that toxin goes into the blood right affecting the muscle of the heart causing rheumatic fever right and also the valves and uh, right so so for those who don't know streptococcus is strep throat the thing that we talk about is as a sore throat and uh you know when you have a sore throat you know typically people go to the doctor's office to get it swabbed to make sure if it is strep or not strep and everyone knows that if you get strep throat, you get antibiotics. Um, but people don't know that you get the antibiotics not for the treatment of the strep throat,
but to prevent this autoimmune mechanism, That's right. which has been in uh, in medical literature for a very long time. So, so this is one of the cases that we have to take it seriously. Yeah, a simple infection. If we don't go to the doctor, to pediatrician especially, when when a child Absolutely. is getting this, we have to take antibiotics in order to prevent release of that toxin right. and which is uh, uh, which is initiating an autoimmune disease. So here you go, we're saying in the appropriate setting when it's necessary take antibiotics. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so that's why um, the same uh, slide that we put about the role of oral infection in autoimmunities, we almost duplicated the same thing in relation to streptococcal infection. Right. Why, in this case, again, streptococcus in the adenoids or the tonsils activating very specific type of cells, specific type of immune cells, okay. called T helper 17. Right. T helper 17 usually uh, protecting us against certain infections, such as yeasts, okay. candida albicans. Right. That's their job. They originally thought that it helped with, uh, with tuberculosis and, and difficult, to, That's right. difficult to attack organisms. That's right. right. Now, found that overactivation of the same cell, which is supposed to pr protect us against, against certain infections, unfortunately, they become our enemy. Yeah. So, streptococcus releasing a toxin, activating those T helper 17. T helper 17 migrate through the nerve of the nose, trigeminal nerve, go to the blood-brain barrier. How they break the blood-brain barrier? By releasing a cytokine a mediator called interleukin-17. Right. I know this is a little bit complicated, just remember that the toxin active, activating a cell called T-helper-17, T-helper-17 making a missile-like material, breaking the barriers, the blood-brain barriers, now the door is open to unwanted molecules, everything is in the blood, can get into, into the brain right. and causing serious damage, including inflammation, and then followed by autoimmunity. And this is all from a cell of our own body that was designed to help us, but if it's overactivated in the wrong situation, this is what happens. Absolutely. Okay. Now, there is a couple other diseases associated with this. Okay. I'm not sure if you heard about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. And then I'll go to the next one. Right. And uh, uh, it's associated, at least a, a subgroup of people with OCD. Right, a certain percentage of them. Is associated with streptococcal infection. Right. They got a streptococcal infection. They did not take care of it. The streptococcus goes beneath the tissue. Mm -hmm and stays there. Right. And we had a case, Elroy, that the patient who they did culture with a swab yeah. of the tonsils, yeah. negative for streptococcus. Yes. And the patient had severe OCD. 
obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. The the someone recommended to send the patient to an ENT. Okay. And recommended to open the tonsils and then take a swab. Yeah, of course. And cultured it 100% positive. Unbelievable. Well, that makes sense because if it's not an, a, a really active infection, strep won't be on the outside of the tonsil, right? If Usually, it's, if it's new, yes. If it's new. You, yeah, you right. could see that. Yeah. You could see the pus. Right. Sometimes. But in a chronic infection, sometimes it might hide inside of the adenoids that, are, that we're talking about or the tonsils are really a, a collective system for all of the immune fluids in the mouth. That's right. So guess what? That patient was treated with proper antibiotic. Right. Four weeks later, the OCD, obsessive compulsive uh, disorder and behavior, disappeared. Yeah, it's really fascinating. This is one of those success stories. Yeah. That, you know, when you do the right thing for your patient, you can help your patient. Absolutely. So the other disorder is it's called PANDAS. Yeah. Pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with streptococcal infection. Yeah, it's a very long name. PANDAS. And, and together people talk about them as OCD pandas as kind of one category. Right, right. So, so the same thing, you know, that um, Yes, streptococcal infection is involved, but mm -hmm. our research, our recent research, you know that, yeah. that we found other bacteria or other infections also play a significant That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Now, the same streptococcus, group of streptococcus, in here we are showing that releasing a toxin or protein called M protein. Right. That toxin has the capacity to destroy the endothelial cells. Right. And then when the endothelial cells are destroyed, there are antigens within collagen, elastin, vimentin, laminin. Mm -hmm. What are these, these molecules? Yeah. These are all molecules involved in autoimmune disease. Right. So bacteria releasing a toxin, destroying the tissue antigens, the tissue antigens get released into the blood, immune system goes after them and then setting the stage for autoimmune disease exactly. development in the future. The mechanism that we talked about in general with all of these. So, so how a bacteria can cause not only uh, neuroimmune disorder, uh, OCD, PANDAS, yeah. and almost every single connective tissue disorder. Connective tissue autoimmune yeah, disorder. Absolutely. So that's why uh, we summarize this part yeah. in a very nice slide that infection with group A streptococcus, gas. Right. Okay? Group A streptococcus can cause the following disorders. Rheumatic fever. Yes. That we knew about it 50 years ago. But rheumatic fever also results in nephritis. Why? Nephritis is an inflammatory attack, autoimmune attack against the kidneys. Yeah, because the body makes antibody against the toxin. Toxin as an antigen plus antibody form immune complexes, mm -hmm. activating complement goes into the 
uh, nephrons right. destroying uh, uh, kidney cells, right. and the results of that is nephritis. Right. So our immune system is trying to clean up this toxin, and as we all know, our, our blood is filtered through our kidneys, so as our kidney tries to clean up what our immune system is trying to clean up, the aggregate of all of that starts affecting the cells of the kidney. Yeah. So, rheumatic fever, nephritis, type 1 diabetes, yeah. because certain antibody made against components of streptococcus can turn against our islet cell. By destroying the islet cells, the islet cell will not be able to make insulin and the patient will develop classical type 1 diabetes. Yep. And then we talked about OCD and PANDAS. Great. So those are the five major diseases associated with group A streptococcus. Okay. So that's our oral pathogen category. That's right. Those are our two representatives. That's right. Porphyromonas so, and group A streptococcus. Yes. And there are other oral pathogens, uh, strep sanguis, right. uh, strep oralis, and there are many. Those more. are just the two kind of important examples. That's right. Now, let's move a little bit down. H. pylori. Yes. Okay. H. pylori is one of my favorite bacteria. When it was discovered around 1987. Okay by Dr. Marshall yes. as the cause of uh, ulcers. Actually, they named that Campylobacter pylori. Yeah. Then they found out it wasn't really, belongs to the Campylobacter group. They changed that to Helicobacter pylori. Today, it's very well established as a major cause of ulcers. Peptic ulcer disease. Peptic ulcers. Uh, gastric cancer yes and many many autoimmune diseases yes so and what's the part that we're going to talk about autoimmune component well you know that's why you know I have this uh, you see um, I call these roses I have these roses for yeah. you guys when you see too many petals around the rose right around the flower yeah meaning there are too many autoimmune diseases in the case of group A streptococcus how many did we have? Five. Five. How many do we have in here? Too many to count. Probably 12. <laughs> yeah, so what, what you're saying is that a chronic infection with something like H. pylori doesn't just cause direct damage to the tissue of the stomach and, and the small intestine, uh, but it becomes a setup for autoimmune disease throughout the body, and there are so many examples of H. pylori contributing to autoimmune disease that your rose on this one is has yeah. many 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 yeah so just let me name, name go ahead please list. okay so we talked about uh, duodenal ulcer gastric cancer yeah primary biliary cirrhosis right pbc that's uh, autoimmune disease of the liver autoimmune pancreatitis yes multiple sclerosis mm -hmm. autoimmune of the brain neuromyelitis optica yeah that's different a little bit from multiple it sclerosis. Is, but another autoimmune disease of the central nervous system. Autoimmune, chronic gastritis, obviously. Right. Um, immunothrombocytopenic purpura, meaning right. autoimmune against the platelet. Against your platelet, so people who have low platelet count. Rheumatic diseases. 
joint disease. Thyroid autoimmunity. Yeah. So if you have your, you go to your doctor and your thyroid peroxidase antibodies elevated, thyroglobulin is elevated, please think about infections. Yeah. And one of them could be H. pylori. And, and by the way, uh, screening for those antibodies is one of the things that we generally do as part of our predictive antibody testing. But um, really surprisingly, I, those two antibodies, the antibodies associated with autoimmune thyroid disease, are so common in people who not, didn't even know that they had thyroid disease coming into the clinic. It's really unbelievable. Um, I, in my opinion, it's becoming a, a huge epidemic in the United States. So, so this is another case of that when you find the triggers and get rid of the triggers, you can prevent severe, severe autoimmune diseases. Yes. In the case of thyroid, always you have to take medication. Yeah. That's not the solution. No. That's a uh, temporary yeah. solution. But if you want real solution, you have to come to see a doctor like Elroy, and then if if he will find that an infection is the major cause of autoimmune disease, by removing the triggers, in this case the infection, you can prevent many years of suffering from autoimmune diseases. Absolutely. Then uh, lupus. Yes. With H. pylori. Yeah. Systemic sclerosis. Right, which is a connective tissue disease, basically, where all of the skin and, and uh, soft tissues become hard. And it, it's a very disfiguring disease. So altogether, about 12 different yeah. diseases associated with H. pylori. Unbelievable. And as you know, there are simple treatments for this. There is alternative treatment. There yeah. is a, a triple treatment, and you know better than yeah. Me. H. pylori is 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 uh, you know of of all the chronic infections, actually relatively easy to treat once you know that you have it. Okay, it's a month of October, and uh, pretty soon we are going to celebrate Thanksgiving yes. around November. Yeah, because, you know the time is passing very very fast. So here I have a picture of a turkey for you. Turkey and water. Why did I put turkey and water in here? I have a feeling you're going to talk about uh, Campylobacter jejuni. Right. So, uh, poultry and water could be contaminated with variety of infectious agents. Right. Including E. coli, Salmonella, but particularly Campylobacter jejuni. Right. Why this Campylobacter jejuni? is so important because infect about 10% of the poultry. Yes. If we don't cook Thoroughly. properly, if that bacteria manage to get into our GI system and then release very nasty toxin, yeah. break the gut barriers, get into the blood, releasing a toxin called Again, very similar to lipopolysaccharide. Yeah. Okay, lysooligosaccharide. Right. And our immune system job is to go after that. Right? Make antibody. But unfortunately, that antibody can penetrate the blood-brain barriers mm -hmm. and due to similarity between that lipopolysaccharides of Campylobacter jejuni 
with brain gangliocyte. Yeah. The immune system attacking the gangliocyte and then the patient is losing movement, mm -hmm. losing all kinds of functionalities. Disease called Guillain-Barré syndrome. Yeah. And so let's repeat this bacterial toxin or we get infected or we get food poisoning. In 95% of the cases, this is very important to mention, in 95% of the cases, the beauty of the immune system is in such a way that can get rid of the toxin and the infection, everything after five days will be perfect. Yeah. And here where the gene is playing a role, in individual with certain genetic makeup, when they are exposed to the same bacteria and get so much of that toxin in their blood, the immune cells are going to make huge amount of antibodies. Those antibodies are going to uh, cross the blood-brain barriers, attacking the gangliocyte, and in those 5% only may develop Guillain-Barré syndrome. Some of them may recover yes. from this after a month to six months, but some of them can have yeah. devastating Guillain-Barré syndrome for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So this is another example. Okay. And so therefore, please pay attention to uh, your food, your diet, and especially cook the meat enough to destroy the bacteria. And, and I will say one, one other thing about Campylobacter jejuni is it's, it, it kind of makes it even more important to pay attention to the quality of your food when you're traveling. Uh, many of my patients who have been infected with Campylobacter jejuni have been so while traveling abroad and particularly water sources um, while traveling abroad are something to really pay attention to and they become significant setups for autoimmune disease uh, in those patients so just be careful when you're traveling abroad. So while we are in the gut, yeah. let's talk also about another bacteria called uh, uh, Yersinia enterocolitica. Okay. It's a bacteria again in the gut. Uh, Another one commonly associated with food poisoning. That's right. Yeah. And again, the same story. Overgrowth of that bacteria in the gut environment, releasing very strong toxin. And unfortunately, this toxin this time is similar to thyroid structure. Yeah. And that's why they found direct relationship uh, between Yersinia entercolitica and thyroid autoimmunity. So, Campylobacter jejuni, Guillain-Barré syndrome, autoimmunity in the brain. Yersinia entercolitica, due to similarity between its toxin structure with the thyroid tissue, can result in thyroid autoimmunity. So H. pylori is not the only factor yes. involved in thyroid autoimmunity. Yersinia enterocolitica is another one. Fascinating. And, and that's why a good doctor should be able to find, is it H. pylori? Is it Yersinia enterocolitica? Yeah. Is it another infection? Yeah, thyroid disease is really one of those where uh, 
you'll, you'll see most people with standard treatment just get a regular blood test and then you know they'll say okay your thyroid level is low here's some thyroid medication you're going to be on this for the rest of your life i don't accept that i think you need to dig deeper and you need to start trying to understand where that disease developed from because if you if you figure that out you can try to, at the very least, stop the progression of the disease so someone doesn't need to escalate how much thyroid medication they're on. And in many situations, reverse the disease so you can back up the amount of medication or sometimes uh, take pe people off of their thyroid medication with success. So um, don't accept just the idea that I have a low-functioning thyroid, that's the way I was born. Um, you know, there are many uh, causes that can be discovered um, through this advanced blood testing. Absolutely. Okay, so the rows, the rows for Yersinia enterocolitica, there are six. Okay, so number one, autoimmune thyroid disease. As we just talked about. Number two, enterocolitis. Yeah. Obviously, mm -hmm. the toxin first affect the gut. The gut. Inflammatory bowel disease. How many people are suffering from inflammatory bowel disease and doctors don't know what to do? Yeah. We were having an interesting discussion with some other clinicians yesterday about uh, physicians having successful treatment with um, treating chronic infections in their IBD patients. So we're really starting to understand that these infectious agents play a huge role in the overall idea of inflammatory bowel disease. And when you treat them, patients get remarkably better. Next one is very interesting. So, autoimmune thyroid disease, enterocolitis, autoinflammatory uh, bowel disease, mm -hmm. uveitis. Yes. What is uveitis? Autoimmune disease of the eye. Yeah. A bacteria in the gut, not only is affecting the brain, not only the thyroid, can affect the eye. Mm -hmm. And it's devastating disease that maybe there is no cure for it unless you eradicate that bacteria in the gut at the early stage as possible. And, and the treatments are rather painful and limited. The, you know, they usually involve injections directly into the eye um, from your ophthalmologist. <laughs> then reactive arthritis Yeah. in individual with HLA-B27. Yeah. So HLA-B27 is a genetic subtype that predisposes to this type of autoimmune reaction. But reactive arthritis is an autoimmune uh, joint disease. Right. Right. And finally, also, there is a component of Yersinia enterocolitica, almost similar to a protein in Borrelia burgdorferi, which is a cause of Lyme disease. Yeah. So that by itself also is important because of, uh, you know, meaning if you have Yersinia enterocolitica, can contribute more to Lyme disease. Okay. Okay. So those are the different autoimmune diseases associated with uh, Yersinia enterocolitica. Okay. Still, we are in the gut. We're in the gut. Candida albicans. You know, say a few words about candida yeah, albicans you know, because some people completely dismiss that, but some people only uh, are familiar with uh, yeast vaginal yeast yeah. infection. Yeah. yeah. But believe me, in 1988, I did research and found that candida albicans cross-react with eight or six different tissues, of including the, the brain and, and uh, testes and the uh, ovary. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. It, candida, candida is a really major player 
and they think overgrowth of candida and other fungal subspecies uh, really is very, very prevalent these days. Um, and uh, we'll talk about all the different ways that candida can affect the different joint, the different organs in the body. But um, huge one is is candidal overgrowth in the gut yeah. and, and the issues that that causes. Exactly. So our goal today is just to give you, you know, some uh, some overview. Overview. Yeah. We cannot go into details because then we'll need ten, uh, probably more than ten hours to <laughs> to talk about this. But one thing is very important. I decided to bring this with me, that candida forms germ tube formation. Yes. Candida is in the gut. As long as it's not in, in the form of germ tube, right. that germ tube acts almost like gluten. Right. It binds to the same receptors in the gut as gluten, and the receptor doesn't know that it's gluten as, as far as that receptor is and, concerned. And then opening the tight junctions and penetrating. So you get... And therefore goes to the submucosa and uh, uh, becomes real candidiasis. It's so fascinating that a, an infectious pathogen, a fungus like candida, can mimic a dietary protein like gluten in yes. the body. It's really a fascinating mechanism. And in, in my mind, part of the reason that so many people have issues with both, you, there's really, if in clinical experience, a lot of overlap between people with gluten sensitivity and also fungal overgrowth in their gut. And, yes. and, and to me, that's the mechanism of that overlap. Yeah. The, the, the next one is a virus okay. in the gut. Okay. And uh, interesting that you talk about gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. That uh, we know, that, first of all, that about 45% of people carry a gene, HLA, DQ2, DQ8, yeah. which are more susceptible to celiac disease. Yeah. However, if you look at the person population with celiac disease, they used to be they used to say it's one person. Yeah, now three percent. But recently we talked, you remember the rise of the celiac surge. Cel yeah, in We're now 3%. scientific America, it's three percent. Yeah. And maybe it's five percent. Okay. So if it's the gene, how come forty-five percent carry the gene, but only five percent develop celiac disease during their life. Right. Always, in addition to gene, you need a trigger. Right. One of those triggers found to be rotavirus. Yeah. If you get rotavirus infection, again, this could be due to food poisoning. Right. Rotavirus right? is, is a, another very common virus. In medical school, we learned that it's associated with kind of cruise ship GI infections. Um, but it's, it's very ubiquitous. A lot of people have been exposed to rotavirus. Children are very often exposed to rotavirus. Um, so it's something that we have around us. So, so imagine you are HLA-DQ28 positive. Right. Like the, the rest are 45%. Right. No harm is done. Okay. You eat wheat, consume wheat. Your body hasn't reacted no to it No problem yet. at all. Yeah. Now you go to a trip. Mm -hmm. And you get rotavirus infection. Okay. Diarrhea changing completely the integrity of your gut, yeah. now your immune system changes completely and you consume gluten, your immune system reacts against it, and then this whole cascade of celiac disease, which is a classical autoimmune disease of the gut, is initiated by what? It wasn't the gene, by a trigger, in this case, rotavirus. A virus, yeah. So that's why we have to be very careful. Absolutely. 
still in the gut, just a little bit about parasites. Okay. You start. Yeah, you know, par parasites, another one that you, you learn about uh, in medical school is, is being extremely rare and having these very um, wild presentations in clinic. But things like uh, amoeba, uh, blastocystis, giardia are things that we are exposed to on a fairly, fairly regular basis, especially when traveling. So, um, so again, the mechanism also, um, the parasites get into the GI tract. There are receptors on the epithelial cells, yes. right there, right? Yeah. They attach themselves to that. Right. And like snakes now, they can break the tight junctions and go through. Directly. Directly. Right. So they directly cause leaky gut. Not only cause leaky gut, they change the integrity of the immune system of the gut. Right. And then now the parasites could be in the blood, can change the integrity of the uh, uh, immune system, the factors in the blood, and then immune system try to attack them. And then that immune system also turns against ourselves. And the results of that could be autoimmunity. And the thing, this is what we mean when we say that the infectious pathogens are fighting back because look at all these weapons that they have right. that are being used, you know, against our health. And uh... so this is example of entamoeba histolytica. Yeah. And why this is so important? Because entamoeba histolytica has it's unicellular, right? It's right. just one cell. Yeah, one blob. But it has <laughs> also actin. Yes. What is actin? Actin and myosin, they're part of the human tissue structure. Right, they're part of the, the musculoskeletal structure. The, okay. the so now, your immune system goes after entamoeba histolytica, and then the actin of the entamoeba histolytica gets released, the immune system attacking that actin, and now the same cells are attacking our own actin, resulting in autoimmunity. Yeah. And this is classical example of infection, simple infection, causing induction of autoimmunities through a mechanism called molecular mimicry or antigenic similarity right. between infection and human body. Right. The protein in, in the infection is similar enough to the protein in your own body that the antibody uh, that your body produces against one reacts to the other and it, it's an unintended consequence of immune reactivity. Yeah. Now we are going to talk about another um, microorganism. I think we talked about bacteria, uh, parasites. Now let's talk, and we talk about some viruses in the gut. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, microorganisms which is between a bacteria and a virus called chlamydia. Right. Many people are familiar with chlamydia as a cause of STD. Right or uh, chlamydia causing blindness. Sure. Uh, chlamydia trachomatis. Mm -hmm. uh, but this chlamydia, we are talking about chlamydia pneumoniae. Right. Uh, causing pneumonia. Right, an atypical kind of pneumonia. Yes. And look at the rows. Wow, right? Yeah. That shows to you guys, this microorganism is involved in variety of autoimmune diseases. Why? Because it's releasing a, an antigen called heat shock protein 60. And chlamydia heat shock protein 60 almost identical to human heat shock protein 60. 
So let's, we need to explain a little bit in here that Hitchak protein in our body actually is produced due to some, to some stressful conditions. Right. When the tissue is stressed, right. releasing Hitchak protein, we call them also chaperone proteins, right. to protect us against some of those stressful conditions. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the immune system attacked the HSP60, Hitchak protein 60, and we due to cross-reaction between Hitchak protein 60 of chlamydia pneumonia or human Hitchak protein 60 with other tissue antigens can result in a variety of autoimmune diseases, yeah. which I'm going to read them. Okay, go for it. Okay. So rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. Uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Yeah. Systemic lupus erythematosus, lupus, mixed connective tissue disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, periodontitis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, yeah. myasthenia gravis, yes. uh, Hashimoto thyroiditis, atherosclerosis particularly, which is disease of the blood vessels, so heart attack and stroke, autoimmune retinopathy, that's right. another autoimmune, and then multiple sclerosis. Yeah. This is just so many autoimmune diseases associated with chlamydia pneumonia releasing Hitchhock protein 60. Fascinating. And then uh, uh, molds yeah. and mycotoxins. Such a fascinating topic and especially after you know the recent flooding in Houston and how many people live there uh, and then all the you know recent flooding that we've had in New Jersey, New York, uh, Florida, you know, mold is becoming more and more and more um, a daily health issue for many people in the United States, and it's a particularly dangerous one. And uh, absolutely, we need to talk about this probably in yeah, the future. Its own episode. We'll spend time. <laughs> okay, but this time, just I'm going to read autoimmune diseases associated with mold and mycotoxin exposure. Yeah. But let's make statement in here. Please don't think that if you have a little bit of green or black spots on the wall that we are talking about that kind of mold exposure. No. Elroy just mentioned that when you have extreme flooding, um, uh, water damage for months yeah. in your building you, that you don't take care of it, then you get exposed to molds and the mycotoxins in the air and then can initiate some of these disorders that I'm, going, that I'm going to read. Yeah, it has to be a significant mold exposure. Chronic fatigue fibromyalgia as yeah. a new name. Myalgic encephalitis. Yeah. Sinusitis, obviously. And again, remember, sinusitis and then that mechanism can go to the Directly brain. to the brain. Allergies and hypersensitivities, obviously. Breakdown in gut and blood brain barriers. Yeah. Mixed connective tissue disease, lupus, polyneuropathy, liver autoimmunity, and another one which I read very recently, Edward, that components of yeast, or in this case mold, I'm sorry, mold, such as uh, penicillium, notatum, uh, aspergillus, the black mold, stachybotrys, cross-react with inner ear called cochlein. Yeah. So you get exposed to molds and mycotoxins, you make antibody against them, now the antibody is going to attack your own uh, cochleans and that's why don't be surprised 
Why am I losing my hearing? Right? So think about exposure to infections, particularly to uh, molds and mycotoxins. Fascinating. The other cross-reactivity is with interferon. What is interferon? Our body makes this weapon to get rid of infections, right? Especially viruses. Right. To interfere with viral growth. But what happens? The mold antibody cross-react with interferon, meaning making the weaponry of our body or the capacity, capacity of our body to fight viruses to become mute. So it weakens your entire, your entire immune, immune system. system. So that's why it's so important. If really you have water damage building, don't live in that environment until you get rid of that and make sure the environment is healthy for living and then you can go back and live in that environment. Yeah. And the last one, my favorite. Okay, Epstein-Barr virus. So you go talk about this Epstein-Barr virus. Why, why, why is Epstein-Barr virus my favorite? I think um, Epstein-Barr virus is the virus that is associated with mono mononucleosis as, as a kid or a teenager, what we call kissing disease. You know, uh, very swollen glands, fatigue, and enlargement of the spleen, and, and pain associated with that. And um, it's a very interesting acute infection and one that's very common that we're all familiar with. We've all known people in college or high school who had mono and who were home for a month um, with this disease. The really fascinating part of EBV or Epstein-Barr virus comes in the reactivated or chronic form of it and something that not everybody in the medical community accepts as an idea, but for those of us that have been treating patients completely understand that this is absolutely a mechanism for patients with fatigue, for patients with thyroid disease, and for patients with gut issues. Uh, and here, here's the rows for EBV, and the rows includes autoimmune liver disease, food immune reaction, and autoimmunity. So, it is actually a trigger, as we talked about in rotavirus for gluten, it is actually a trigger for multiple immune reactivity to food. Uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome, which is an autoimmune disease of the uh, secretory glands of your face um, and your mouth, so you can't produce tears and you can't produce saliva. It's really a very debilitating autoimmune disease for those people. Multiple sclerosis, so again, uh, an autoimmune disease of the brain. Uh, type 1 diabetes, polyneuropathy, thyroid autoimmunity, as I just mentioned. So, we have this very basic thing that we kind of learned causes mono, and again, you know, probably in 70-80% of people who get acute infectious mononucleosis will clear it, or maybe they get acutely infected with EBV and it doesn't even progress to acute mononucleosis. Yeah, but the virus stays in our B cells, B -cells forever. Right. And why are the B cells so important? Yeah. Here an article. You see, we, everything here is evidence-based. I can bring you another hundred articles about the role of EBV in autoimmunity, but this one is from just this month of Journal of Immunology. EBV infection empowers human B cells for autoimmunity. What yeah. does that mean, Elroy? So, 
Essentially, the way I think about it is that EBV is laying dormant in these B cells, which are responsible for the production of the antibodies against all these dangerous things in our body, really such very vital, important roles. In the reactivated or, or woken up form of EBV that's proliferating these B cells because it's active inside of them, uh, B cells that would be producing antibodies normally in very small numbers start producing them in very large numbers to things that it wasn't intended to do that to. So normally we have very small amounts of right. antibodies circulating in our blood as a protective mechanism. and Now 100 times more. Right. Those, those antibodies are through the roof and we are forming immune reactions to food that we didn't yeah. intend. What the antibodies are doing? Attacking our own tissue, unfortunately. Right. So that's why Epstein-Barr virus is becoming so important in autoimmunities and that's based on article published this month in Journal of Aut uh, uh, Immunology. And, and EBV this testing, year of Journal of, the, this month of Journal of Immunology. I will say that as, as far as EBV testing is concerned, you're one of the experts and immunosciences really does the most comprehensive job in doing a full EBV panel to look for all and the different viral markers. panel in general, and, including herpes type 6, which also um, again, it's almost the same category of Epstein-Barr virus, but causes even more severe yeah. autoimmune diseases, uh, including chronic fatigue fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, collagen vascular disease, lupus, thyroiditis, Hashimoto's, and and then uh, chronic see chronic fatigue fibromyalgia. So now we've covered four pathogens that can play a role in autoimmune thyroid disease. Right, and finally, I think. Lyme disease is the last one we are going to talk about and uh, uh, we are going to close this session. What are the diseases associated with Lyme disease? Sure. But please explain what is Lyme disease. So uh, Lyme disease is another thing that you have, I think, really particular expertise in the field and it's very, 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 very necessary. We to have find. a patented technology. And, and you were really one of the big pioneers in blood testing for Lyme disease. And I think you understand it probably more than, than most people out there do. And it's a very controversial topic because of the confusion with testing, I think. But uh, Lyme disease is, is an infection uh, by a spirochete uh, called Borrelia in, in the United States, most often Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, transmitted by a tick. And, and most people will get infected or exposed to it uh, while hiking, uh, you know, in the mountains of, of Colorado or the East Coast, but we really have it all over the United States yes, now. Yes, even, even in Los Angeles. It's, it, it's present in our mountains as well. It's been found on ticks in, in, in California, in the mountains here. And it's also present in different forms in Europe and Japan. Um, and they all kind of contribute to this um, chronic infective um, thing called Lyme disease. And, and really the symptoms are related to the autoimmune cross-reactivity that goes on. Yeah. So the art, again, is early detection. Yeah. If you get infected with Borrelia burgdorferi and you develop Lyme disease, please go see your doctor immediately. This is one of those cases that I recommend immediate antibiotic treatment. Right. So this is another case. And that's because Lyme disease has this ability to start hiding itself in cells or uh, in different parts of the body where the antibiotics won't be, um, they won't, they won't be exposed to the antibiotics, so they won't be affected by them. So that's why chronic Lyme really becomes a, um, a real issue for patients. Uh, in fact, Elroy, a scientist from England mm -hmm. in 1987 published this article about the role of 
Borrelia burgdorferi or Lyme disease, the spirochetes right. in general, right. in Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Root Yitzhaki, you yeah. know, I'm saying that with Hebrew accent. Root Yitzhaki, probably Israeli, working in England. Yep. She published that article, but when she published that article, no one wanted to talk to her, yeah. believe me. But today, it's almost accepted. Why? Because they looked at 490 different brain of patients with Alzheimer's disease. They found in 450 of them spirochetes. Yeah. But it's a huge number. Yeah. But only 25 in a well, 25% were Borrelia burgdorferi. Right. The other 75% were spirochetes of the mouth. Right. So again, direct transmission. Know, the direct transmission. Yeah. So please go to your doctor if you think that you have, you know, you had a, a bite. Uh, with a tick, please go to your doctor. Otherwise, if it becomes chronic, the following disorders could be developed. IgA nephropathy, yeah. rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune thyroiditis, myocarditis, neuroborreliosis, right. infection of the brain, lichen sclerosis, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, autoimmune uveitis, again, excessive food immune reaction, red meat allergy, you know, we need to explain all of that, but yeah. we don't have time for that. Today, we just gave you some teasers about the role of infections and examples of the infections, bacteria, parasite, viruses, molds, yeasts, and spirochetes in autoimmunities. The message is detect them at the early stage as possible, otherwise, when the infections become chronic, the results of that could be devastating autoimmune disease. So the final message is this that Elroy is going to explain. Yeah, so again, when we talk about autoimmune disease, we talk about the different stages, right? Uh, on, on the very right in green is the healthy stage. So just normal functioning human body, no exposure to any environmental triggers. Uh, in yellow, we have autoimmune activation, which basically means exposure to one of the big categories of triggers, food, chemicals, and now we've covered infectious pathogens. Then we get to um, this pre-symptomatic phase where the autoimmune disease is brewing, the antibodies are present, but they haven't started to affect uh, the joints in yeah, a way. We call that autoimmune reactivity. Reactivity. It hasn't started to attack the joints. Then we have the symptomatic phase, okay? This is where most people get picked up, okay? Uh, somewhere between the symptomatic phase and the degeneration phase, which is when the antibodies have started to attack joints or the brain or the thyroid and symptoms are present that get someone to go to the doctor and say, hey, what's going on with me? And then the last part of that is where the antibodies have caused irreversible damage to these organs. Obviously, our goal is always to catch someone before they get to the irreversible point. Our ideal is to catch someone in the pre-symptomatic phase where these antibodies are circulating in the body, but they haven't caused any tissue damage. And when you find them in this stage, when you find people, if you're out there listening, and, and essentially the big message here is we wanna get you, we wanna get people identified before any damage has been done to your body so that you can remove whatever the setup was for this antibody formation and you don't have to worry about it anymore. You, you say to yourself, um, 
you avoided 10 or 20 years of suffering before this was figured out. And, and the way that we do that, and I think is really the most important step, is, is the blood testing that you developed based on all of this years and years and years of knowledge and research, which is uh, Cyrex Array 12, which is the pathogen-associated immune, react immune reactivity screen. Uh, I like to call it PEARS. Yes. Um, yes. But uh, basically, we screen for the presence of antibodies um, associated with the autoimmune... About 29 different microorganisms. Right. So everything that we talked about and more, okay? Lyme is in there, co-infections are in there, oral, pathogen, oral yes. gut, viruses, uh, mold is in there. Everything is in there. And um, for people who have had some significant exposure that they know of or may not have known of, and they have symptoms that, that really start to think that you're in early stages of autoimmune disease, get tested. Find out if you have these antibodies circulating in your system. And, um, you know, we really have the power and knowledge to prevent years and years of suffering in people. The time to do that is now. The knowledge is now. This is not something that we need to explore in the future. The evidence is clear. So, uh, my message to everybody is to really get out there, either come see me or another practitioner that's trained in this knowledge, uh, trained in this idea of thinking, and there, there are plenty of them out there, thankfully, these days. And um, we want to help people get healthy and, and not get to the points of having to experience things like rheumatic joint disease, which you unfortunately saw your mom right. um, for many years experience. So, and, and that was related to oral pathogens. Absolutely. Her, right? yes, yes, yes. So, you know, we yes. have unfortunately firsthand family experience with this. And I think that has been a huge uh, driver for us in, in pushing this forward. Yeah. So the final, final message is detect. Yeah. Based on available laboratory testing and remove the source, meaning go to a doctor like Elroy, who will treat or remove the triggers, and then finally you repair the barriers, and hopefully the patient's autoimmune reactivity will reverse. Right. Um, and this blood testing is, is very easily available, ready available. I draw the, the blood in myself in the lab here and send it out. Um, and, uh, you know, in my opinion, it, you know, usually a few hundred dollars per panel, but um, really tremendous information that you get from each one of those. So I encourage all of you out there to reach out to a healthcare practitioner that can help you and prevent these years of suffering. Thank you so much for watching. Thank uh, you. Next episode, Vojdani U, episode six, we are going to cover uh, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, a really fascinating um, uh area of research and idea development that we've been involved in, you have been involved in a lot. Um, Dr. Dale Bredesen and David Perlmutter uh, have, have been, uh, you know, utilizing a lot of your testing in their treatment protocols and um, we're very excited to talk to you guys about it and share the knowledge with you because Alzheimer's should be a thing of the past uh, and I say that with confidence. And we'll share all of that with you in our next episode. So thank you so much for watching. Thank you. Thanks, Dad. All right.